Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream. Without even looking, I can tell you it's episode 151, and that's about as far as I've gotten with the uh, irrelevant question. Have you, um, have you thought about it? It is episode 151. You are Dr. Brett Weinstein. I am Dr. Heather Hyang. And hey, Zach, is, Zach is saying that he cannot hear. Can you hear me? All right. Well, it is episode 151. We are here at the Dark Horse uh, Temporary Permanent Temporary Permanent Temporary Studio, I think. And uh, while the uh, the original host, main host, is getting his audio working, I will just walk us through a few other things. We are going to do a Q&A today. Unlike uh, what we have done for the last couple of weeks, we apologize for the tech problems. Uh, so we have a lot of questions already queued up, but we will accept more questions as well. You can ask those at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And tomorrow we are actually doing two more live streams, so four live streams this weekend. It is November 26th, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, as I, American Thanksgiving as I'm speaking. Tomorrow, Sunday, November 27th at 9.45 Pacific time, we're going to do a short one-hour holiday gift live stream and talk some about... Uh, about things like that and as if on cue, actually on cue. On cue, more or less, we are going to talk about uh, many wonderful things, including this fabulous object that was sent to us by a good friend, uh, a marvelous gift. And anyway, you will find out more about it tomorrow. Both the object and the friend are a gift? Uh, the friend is a gift, as far as I'm concerned, frankly, to planet Earth. But really. we can't gift him to others. I wouldn't even try. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that, my computer has decided to go to sleep. <laughs> Apparently we're boring it. Um, we're going to do that tomorrow at 9.45 Pacific and then at 11 a.m. Pacific, as always on the last Sunday of the month, although December we're going to switch it up a little bit because that would make it Christmas, uh, we do our private Q&A, which you can get access to through my Patreon. So uh, those are a lot of fun. They really have a very different tenor than the public Q&As that we do. Uh, in part because the audience is so much smaller that we're actually able to watch and interact with the chat and uh, answer, you know, address things that come up in the chat in real time, which is which is wonderful. So, this is the first of four live streams for us, your hosts of Dark Horse this week. Uh, should I just keep talking now that your audio is back? Uh, no, I just uh, okay. I'm 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 now joining the chat, which is the uh, chat. Well, that's how the kids say it. So and so has now joined the chat. Dr. Freud has now joined the chat at the point somebody makes an embarrassing linguistic error that suggests something Freudian. I see. So anyway, yes, I've joined the chat. Uh, sorry about that little hiccup with the uh, the audio, but uh, here we are. No worries. Uh, the chat, the actual chat, not the one that Brett has joined, is live on Odyssey. <laughs> or Dr. Freud. Um, I, I can't speak to that. I'm not on Odyssey at the moment. I have not seen, checked whether or not Dr. Freud is or is not there. There's presumably someone alive right now who is legitimately a Dr. Freud Maybe they're on Odyssey. I don't know. I How don't could know. we know? Uh, this week at Natural Selections, which is where I write, uh, I have a piece called On Hate Crimes and Child Abuse, and it's responsive to the Club Q massacre outside of Colorado Springs this week uh, at Club Q, which uh, is denominated as an LGBTQ nightclub, and specifically about the response by some in the media that this was an inevitable thing to have happened given that there are people out there who critique taking children to drag shows and giving them puberty blockers. 
And that is uh, an extraordinary and uh, despicable claim. And I write about that some in Natural Selections this week. And that is that kind of thinking is related to a lot of what uh, you were going to be steering us through this week, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we will talk in depth, but uh, how one puzzles through these, these difficult questions is really uh, the core, the core of the matter. Yeah. I will say um, this is of absolutely no importance really to anyone and, and of no relevance at all to anyone just listening but i am stuck with my low rent laptop stand this week and mm. uh that's it it's just dumb it's just a dumb <laughs> laptop stand it's way too big it doesn't really sit on me very well anyway um i'm not pleased with it either i expect i will hear from some of you who aren't because that's the kind of thing that some people comment on um it's already antagonizing me Okay, we have a new store, as uh, we've talked about the last several weeks. It's terrific. It's a small operation run by a couple who um, they both have the print shop where they make uh, the merchandise, and they also run the store itself. And it's at uh, darkhorsestore.org, and you can find all sorts of cool stuff. Well, I'm sure we'll mention that again tomorrow with regard to the holiday gift episode. But uh, you can get Do Not Comply, Do Not Affirm shirts. You can get Lie to a Tyrant Dark Horse, um, straight up Dark Horse stuff. Uh, it's it's pretty great. And uh, by way of finishing up announcements and um, sort of general logistics, we are supported by you, our audience. We are grateful to you. Uh, we appreciate you subscribing to the channel, the main channel, the Clips channel. That's Dark Horse Podcast Clips on either uh, YouTube or Odyssey. Uh, and liking and sharing both full episodes and clips wherever you watch or listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere. And uh, just a reminder that even if you're seeing ads that are not being read by us on YouTube, that doesn't mean that we are uh, in the good graces of YouTube. Nope, certainly not. Uh, they are putting ads on our content and making money off of us, but not sharing any of that with us. Uh, so uh, they demonetized us for... Um, being really truly awful people and apparently since we have not seen the wisdom of our ways they have decided not to remonetize us yes yes my interpretation was a little different about oh. who, who is truly awful but uh you know <laughs> yes. anyway we can we can agree to disagree about that and have no other choice apparently. oh no I, th I think actually i agree with you oh um, no no you and i are not agreeing to disagree i am Agreeing to disagree with YouTube because they have left me exactly zero other options. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. You can join uh, either of our Patreons, as I mentioned, uh, next week before, well, since we're going to have a lot more live streams this week, it won't be before you have a chance to see us again, but before next week's live stream, we will, uh, Brett will have one of his Patreon conversations, and tomorrow we have the private Q&A, which is on mine. Uh, we encourage you to join it, and also on uh, either of our Patreons, you can get access to the Discord server, where you can meet uh, a wide range of people and engage in honest conversations about difficult topics, have uh, karaoke night, uh, book club, young or old, left or right, there's a spot for you at the campfire. Okay. We also do have sponsors, and we are grateful to them. We only take sponsors uh, who make products or offer services that we ourselves can directly and have directly assessed and decide are high quality, or in a couple of uh, cases, as in one of today's uh, sponsors, we have a close friend who can directly assess and has said, yes, this is, this is worthy of your sponsorship. So without further ado, we have our three sponsors for this week. The first is Seed. Seed is a company focused on bacteria and the microbiome, and they have a terrific probiotic called DSO-1 Daily Synbiotic. 
That's S-Y-N, Biotic. I always prefer eating real food to taking pills, but I have to say I really love this product. There are a lot of things that you can do to enhance your health, and we talk about uh, many of them here on Dark Horse, and our sign-off includes three of them. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. But a lot is hidden in those words. What, for instance, constitutes good food? Good food is real food, whole food, food that has been alive recently and was grown with care in conditions as ancient as possible, given the constraints of the 21st century. But even many people who eat such a diet are missing something. We contain multitudes. Every individual human contains so many other organisms, some of which may harm us, but many of which exist with us in harmony. We need them. This is why probiotics can be an important tool in a healthy lifestyle, even if you eat nutrient-dense food and avoid processed foods and sugar. As if on cue, our other cat has shown up looking for nutrient-dense food. <laughs> that said, probiotics are kind of the new current thing. Everyone's taking them or thinking of taking them. It can seem like maybe it's just a fad. Good news, though. Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is the real deal. Not all probiotics are created equally. Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic. It contains 24 distinct probiotic strains in a two-in-one capsule that protects the probiotics until they hit the colon where they are most effective. If you've taken a probiotic before and never felt a difference, it's likely because the good bacteria weren't surviving your GI tract. GI tract. Seed is designed differently. That's why it works. Seed's daily symbiotic supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. Many who have used Seed report improvements to their, to, mm, to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com, S-E-E-D, just like it sounds, slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse at checkout. Our program is also brought to you. Our second sponsor today is Soul, S-O-L-E, a sustainable orthopedic footwear company. Soul is one of our two footwear sponsors and we love them both. They're quite... Uh, they are quite different from one another, yet both have an evolutionary approach to creating shoes that help feet get and stay healthy and people become more mobile. Sole intentionally brings structure back with both their shoes and their footbeds. Sole aims with its footwear to return our feet to health, and the shoes by Sole are beautiful. I've been wearing a, pole of sole, a pair of Sole Districts, a low-zipped short boot and camel-colored vegetable tan suede leather, and I love them. Sole footbeds are the industry standard and over-the-counter supportive insoles and inserts. They are moldable for custom comfort, giving you all the benefits of personalized support at a fraction of the price of orthotics. Sole footbeds, which are made from recycled cork, include a signature supportive arch, which is clinically proven to reduce arch strain in your feet up to 34%. This is especially effective in helping recovery from plantar fasciitis, which affects more than 2 million Americans, along with a range of other ailments, from shin splints to hip, knee, and back pain. Sole footbeds also promote neutral alignment and good posture and are particularly effective at preventing fatigue when standing for long hours on hard surfaces. Sole is on a mission to end foot pain in North America, so they are sending a free footbed to every zip code on the continent. Dark Horse listeners should visit yoursoul.com slash darkhorse. And if you live in a zip code or in the U.S. or a postal code in Canada where Sole hasn't shipped, you'll receive a free performance medium footbed. They believe in the quality of their product so much that they are sure that once you feel the comfort, pain relief, performance enhancement, and injury prevention benefits of sole footbeds, you will want them in every shoe you own. Simply enter your zip code or postal code in the shipping section at checkout to stand a chance to get a totally free footbed while supplies last. 
If your footbed isn't free because Sol is already shipped to your zip, you can still get 50% off by entering Dark Horse 50 at checkout. So far, Sol has shipped to 38% of the 41,000 zip codes in the U.S. They've got a lot of giving to do. Help push those percentages by visiting yoursoul.com slash darkhorse today. Our final sponsor this week is MD Hearing Aid. MD Hearing Aid makes high-quality, effective hearing aids for a tiny fraction of what most hearing aids cost, and you can buy directly from them. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. Most people who need hearing aids only require a few settings, so he removed several of the less often needed components, and he cut out the middleman. MD Hearing Aid has sold over a million units and, over, uh, and has a uh, 45-risk a risk-free 45-day tr- risk-free trial and money-back guarantee. That's what it says on the paper. You totally do it. Um, these hearing aids aim to fit so well that no one will know you're wearing them. The rechargeable batteries last up to 30 hours. Their Volt Plus model is water resistant in up to three feet of water, and you don't need a prescription to get one. You buy it directly from the source where audiologists and licensed hearing specialists are available seven days a week. Everyone can empathize with what it feels like to be left out of a conversation that others are enjoying. Here's a testimonial from a friend of ours who has substantial hearing loss and who relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try this product, and here's what she said. Quote, With my particular type of hearing loss, a deep male voice in a noisy room is the hardest situation for me to hear and understand speech. I wore the MD hearing aid to have a conversation with a deep-voiced man in a room with a lot of white noise. The MD hearing aid passed the test as my conversation partner's voice was clear and understandable, At a price point of under $1,000, I was amazed at how effective they are. MD Hearing Aid is bringing affordable hearing to hundreds of thousands of people, people who might not otherwise be able to afford high-quality hearing aids. Get clinic-level care for 90% less with MD Hearing Aid. Go to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal. A pair of hearing aids costs just $149.99. Plus, Dark Horse listeners receive a free extra charge case a $100 value. So head to mdhearingaid.com and use promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal, a pair of hearing aids for only $149.99. All right. That's our sponsors for the day. That is our logistics and our background. And um, here we are. Here End we are. End of November 2022. Right. Time marches on. Time. I don't know if you've noticed that. Time marches on. Two and three quarters years into the public becoming aware of COVID. Yes. Now, I wanted to talk about something that's a little bit delicate this week. Um, I wanted to talk about the apparent exit from Twitter of Claire Lehman and Sam Harris. And uh, I don't want to talk about it because I think it's especially important to talk about those two and whatever choice they have made and the reasons they have made it. But I do think that their trajectory over COVID actually gives us reason to reflect on why the intellectual landscape broke apart in the way that it did. Um, But before doing that, I do want to say um, both Sam and Claire have been, as many people have pointed out, quite terrible to us over the course of COVID. And so just for, for the uninitiated, um, who are they? Yeah. All right. Sam Harris, as many will know, is primarily, I would say a philosopher by training. He's a neurobiologist. 
um, or at least that's what he uh, studied in graduate school. He hasn't uh, been a functioning academic uh, after his degree, as far as I know. But in any case, he's a prolific author. He's written on many important questions, including questions of free will. He's written a very famous book on um, lying. That is, in fact, the title of the book about uh, the harm that is done to civilization by lying being a, a normal process and argue that it is effectively never justified. Um, anyway, he's also uh, a friend and uh, a member of what was loosely termed the intellectual dark web. Um, Claire Lehman is the founder of Quillette, which is an online magazine that was uh, also affiliated with the intellectual dark web. It was a very vibrant outlet for heterodox content in, during the, uh, the height of the battles over wokeness in the public sphere. Um, so it was a, uh, a, a, I think it was founded in 2016. And by the, when we became aware of it in 2017, it was ascending rapidly. And I think it was founded in 2015. Doesn't really matter somewhere okay. in that neighborhood. Um, but in any case, uh, Claire is the, the founder and the, uh, editor in chief of Quillette. And so this week, Sam, uh, exited, Twitter after it was, it, we of course, none, none, those of us who have not talked to Sam don't know exactly why, why he exited. It is clear that it was his decision to do it. He was not thrown off of Twitter. Um, but he left after a brief back and forth over the question of Musk, Elon Musk, returning uh, Trump's account to functionality on Twitter. Now, as far as I know, Trump has not tweeted but his account is restored. And Sam's point, which is consistent with things Sam has been saying for uh, many years, was that Trump is such a grave threat to democracy and civilization that um, Musk should not allow him back on. And this is obviously in conflict with uh, Musk's stated objective to make a public square in which a wide variety of viewpoints are allowed. and. Um, so that's the long and short of it. After Sam left Twitter, shortly after Claire, uh, also inactivated her account. And these are just, they're not, these accounts appear to be deleted. And my understanding is that their owners have something like 30 days to reactivate them and they would come back, uh, as normal accounts having lost no functionality or followers or anything. But if they don't reactivate in 30 days, they will be, uh, permanently invalid. There are a few Washington Post articles <clears throat> on the changes afoot at Twitter that I, um, that I want to insert in here at some point. I don't know. I, I don't know if this is the moment. I think, I think it's not. Let me say the upfront part and then we can come to what, uh, what the Washington Post has. But I, but I also have some things about your two, your, your two types of people in the world. So I, I, I don't want to get either of those, those branches lost here. Yep. Fair enough. The first thing I want to say is I don't think the exit of these people from Twitter is a good thing, as much as I'm not happy with the way either of them has behaved towards us over the course of COVID especially. Um, I think it is a loss to have 
these voices not present in what is either going to be or not going to be a new public square. In other words, by what reads like taking their ball and going home, they are robbing Twitter of the potential to be a place where we restore the capacity that was um, once uh, explicitly defended by Sam and uh, certainly at least implicitly defended by Claire, which is to say a place where we hash out disagreements honorably, um, you know, without it being personal. Twitter could become that potentially, but if certain voices decide they won't be there because there are opinions being expressed there that they find are beyond the pale, then it can't be that. And so I would say um, that I certainly hope that with the clock ticking on those accounts expiring, both of them will reconsider. And I would ask people to be kind to them if they do come back and, and realize that we all have an interest in a public square that works. And we do not want to get in the habit of driving people uh, from it. All right. Do you want to say what you uh, wanted to bring to the conversation about the Washington Post? Uh, it feels like a much less obvious place now, but I guess I can. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, hmm. It's your call. I mean, we can... I'd like some water first, though. I know. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Uh, this is going to feel like a non sequitur. Um... Taylor Lorenz, who is uh, her own cultural phenomenon, wrote in the Washington Post a few days ago, uh, why now my computer won't open it. Uh, so now, of course, I'm having the technical problems. Was this her Here piece about uh, online safety experts? So you can show my screen now, Zach. It's called Opening the Gates of Hell. Musk says he will revive banned accounts. The Twitter chief says he will reinstate accounts suspended for threats, harassment, and misinformation beginning next week. Uh, and I just, there are a few things to share from here. Here's one. Quote, Apple and Google need to seriously, this is a quote from the piece, but it's also a quote from someone named Alejandra Caraballo. Apple and Google need to seriously start exploring booting Twitter off the App Store, said Alejandra Caraballo, clinical instructor at Harvard Law's Cyber Law Clinic. What Musk is doing is existentially dangerous for various marginalized communities. It's like opening the gates of hell in terms of the havoc it will cause. People who engage in direct targeted harassment can come back and engage in doxing, targeted harassment, vicious bullying, calls for violence, celebration of violence. I can't even begin to state how dangerous this will be. So that entire paragraph basically is a quote from this person, Alejandra Caraballo, who, well, must be important. Uh, this person is at Harvard Law, except they're not at Harvard Law. They're at Harvard Law's Cyber Law Clinic, and Alejandra Caraballo is a trans person uh, who is one of the most bullying and horrifying people on Twitter. And when I went to uh, remind myself of that fact, I found that Alejandra has has blocked me. So you know, you can you can always see what people tweet by not going in as yourself, and so it's possible to see that uh, this Carbio character um, is indeed uh, full of censorious rage and a lack of recognition of reality. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a bunch of claims here by someone 
who, um, who is simply at a, an institute called uh, the Cyber Law Clinic that exists somehow within the, uh, within the affiliation of Harvard Law, uh, who, pull quote, was then turned into a headline for Washington Post. Okay, so that that's, gives you a sense of what Washington Post is, is promulgating on the world as the effect of Elon Musk's attempt to restore a lack of censorship to Twitter. Scroll down a little bit more in this piece and you get, experts say that bots and bad actors can easily skew the results of a Twitter poll, and so basing decisions on one is irresponsible. Quote, a Twitter poll can be manipulated. There's nothing scientific or rigorous in any way about what he's doing. It's true said Sarah T. Roberts, an associate professor at UCLA and faculty director for UCLA's Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, who previously worked at Twitter researching content moderation processes. So the two main people who are being cited in this article um, appear to have affiliations with elite institutions, right? It's Harvard and UCLA. And we now have Fairfax on screen for those only, only watching. And you could show the full screen now so that people can enjoy the full Fairfaxiness of it all. Um, our epic tabby. Oh no. <laughs> so, and he's gone. Um, Sarah T. Roberts, the associate professor at UCLA, which is more of an affiliation than uh, a clinical instructor or whatever Caravaggio is at the Cyber Law Institute at Harvard. Uh, but the way that uh, Taylor Lorenz has written this, it would appear that Sarah Roberts is an associate professor of, oh, I don't know, a real field. And uh, no, it doesn't take much to discover that actually what Sarah Roberts is an associate professor of at UCLA is in fact gender studies, which uh, you, know, you might have predicted if you had uh, looked at anything that she has done, uh, either in her former role researching content moderation processes at Twitter uh, or uh, now uh, as an associate professor of gender studies at UCLA. So uh, just one more thing about, actually one more thing about this and then one other, uh, one other article from Washington Post this week. Uh, Glenn Greenwald nailed this uh, with his assessment. And uh, sorry, so much got closed down. I will show here in a moment, uh, Zach. Uh, here's just a screenshot. Shot. Screenshot uh, from Greenwald breaking, allowing those disliked by liberals to be heard on the internet will literally kill many people. Screaming face emoji. Uh, Warn the most neurotic, mentally unwell, petulant, petty tyrants who have declared themselves online safety experts and are now called that by liberal media outlets. He follows up. Taylor Lorenz miraculously found three or four people more neurotic, clearly unstable, and censorship happy than she, bestowed them with fake expertise titles, and now the Washington Post is blasting out her alarmist asylum-worthy babbling to millions, hashtag journalism. Uh, that, I don't know if Greenwald is always that snarky, but that struck me as just perfect in terms of describing what actually this is. This is one person who's got a sphere of equally nutso people who don't know reality when it is right in front of them. And Lorenz is citing her little band of ridiculous friends, and the Washington Post is putting it across their their headlines. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, I, I don't know that I would call Greenwald snarky. He's very, very sharp. This, I mean, this felt snarky. It's a little snarky, <laughs> yeah. but I, I mean, I think like many of us, 
he has found that no institution is capable of functioning. And so he is now out here in the Wild West being a journalist and then also being forced to comment on the environment. Instead of just doing journalism, he's now forced to comment on the environment. And what he's pointing to for anybody who missed it is the idea that there is an ideology that absolutely depends on a set of rules that applies to others and not to them. That is the only way that this ideology makes its way in the world. Okay. And so the point is all of the hand-wringing and pearl-clutching and fainting couch-reaching that is going on is people who have gotten used to having uh, the walls have ears and a bias in favor of their perspective mm. are now not so interested in living in a world where... Uh, anything can be said and the platform cannot be brought down on people's heads for, you know, saying that uh, there's evidence that ivermectin works or yeah. um, that, you know, it's a mistake for us to encourage or allow children to be surgically altered because they utter something that someone takes as an indication that they will be trans or something like this. Yep. You need a, a biased environment. But I, I would also just point out, for those who are not paying close attention to what the Washington Post is, the Washington Post is a once great newspaper that is now owned by Jeff Bezos, a direct competitor of Elon Musk, I would assume in many realms, but in one, very clearly, he is also running a private space program. So this is somebody who has a personal axe to grind, uh -huh. potentially, and has major contact, uh, contracts with the CIA. So there's a question about what the Washington Post is and why it takes such an odd perspective and why it is broadcasting the opinions of people who clearly don't have a position from which to say something meaningful and authoritative but are being used as pseudo-authorities to you know, give the thinnest veneer of legitimacy to these absurd uh, opinions. Yes. And so anyway, that's the environment we're living in. No newspaper works. No platform works, no university works, no science journal works, yep. and one individual may, and I don't say this with certainty because I don't know, but one individual may be in the process of attempting to create a single place that functions in order to allow a balanced discussion of things about which we naturally disagree. Right? Yeah, go ahead. One more piece from the Washington Post um, sure. with, with, with that frankly, necessary background as to what, what it now is, what it, you know, it doesn't, with a change of ownership, it doesn't come with a change in the banner, right? It right. still, it still claims um, that it's, the central message of its being is democracy dies in darkness, Yep, I believe. I, have, I haven't actually looked at the, um, the masthead, a physical masthead yes. of the Washington is Post. Is this an recently. observation or is that a threat? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, so that November 24th piece by Lorenz that I just quoted, um, some of the supposed experts, uh, that she's got bolstering, you know, not bolstering, creating her entire argument in that piece also cites an earlier Washington Post piece earlier only by two days, uh, which is this one, which you can show my screen. I will also point out that for those of you who've been watching, I didn't point out, uh, with the previous one, but they're both, both of these pieces are filed under technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got one of those experts, the, the gender studies person at UCLA, running some sort of a, uh, you know, internet information uh, thing. Where you know these these aren't people, I think, 
who actually understand anything about technology. This is the societal implications of choices that people who are running tech companies are making, which is actually totally different from technology. And it's actually the same error that is being made with regard to science. Right. You know, the stuff that's being published in Nature and Science is actually, well, we really feel strongly about the societal implication of this thing that might originally have been found out by science. So we're going to claim that the thing, that our feelings about it, wrong though they may be, um, are, are the science. And, and here, too, we have, you know, this claiming to be science. This is the Washington Post, uh, November 22nd. Musk's free speech agenda dismantles safety work at Twitter, insiders say. Wait, 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 wait. First of all, there's the beautiful insiders say, right, which is like fact checkers say or scientists say or any one of these garbage claims. Yep. But the other thing is the phrase dismantles safety work. Well, we're so the first ending, I'm not going to, we could spend hours on just this article. Yeah. Just the very first anecdote that they provide to, you know, make it clear to the readers that this is really happening. Musk's free speech agenda is dismantling safety work at Twitter. So say the insiders and they would know. Here we go. Hours after Elon Musk took control of Twitter in late October, the trust and safety team responsible for combating hate speech on the site received an urgent directive. Bring back the Babylon Bee. To some Twitter employees, the order was troubling. The self-described Christian satirical site had been banned since March for refusing to delete a tweet naming Biden health official Rachel Levine its, quote, man of the year. <laughs> Levine is a transgender woman, and this is not what the Washington Post say, but therefore a man. And the tweet violated a 2018 rule prohibiting Twitter users from targeting transgender people by referring to them by the name or gender they used before transitioning. Used before transitioning assigned at birth. Right. Wrong Washington Post again. Well, and I would point out that this has created, if you think, and I do think that there is an argument that it is not decent in the case of somebody who is actually experiencing gender dysphoria and makes the decision to transition, the kind thing to do is to Treat them as the gender they aspire to be. However, this is this loophole. You can still point out reality, and frankly, you can still even make fun of them because we're all allowed to make fun of people. Right. Well, that's just the question, and especially these papers have no standing. Right. The idea that we are to pretend um, that uh, that Chelsea Manning gave documents to WikiLeaks is in violation with the facts of history. Right. Um, not if you believe that there is a gender essence that was inside Jason, was it? No, no, it was Bradley. Oh, no, this is Bradley. This Bradley. Is Bradley, yes. Um, but uh, no, my point is, look, it's a goddamn newspaper. It has an obligation to say, look, there's nothing at odds with the idea of transitioning to say Bradley Manning conveyed documents to WikiLeaks and later transitioned and now is known as Chelsea. But I feel... I is known as, right? Like, I, I actually feel like this is kind of missing the point here. The Babylon Bee, which is hilarious, if you don't know it, uh, like, you know, look it up, and yes, it is back on Twitter now, and, and, and good for it, uh, <laughs> made Rachel Levine, I did not find a picture of Rachel Levine here for you guys, but made Rachel Levine Man of the Year, which is, you know, wrong, but not because it's calling Rachel Levine a man, Well, because Rachel Levine is a man, uh, and Rachel Levine has actually helped uh, destroy a lot of lives through the trans nonsense and also now the COVID nonsense. But the, Levine was like the 
head health official in Pennsylvania, I think, before being upranked by the Biden administration to something something, and now gets to wear military regalia yeah, she's an somehow. Um, but look. <laughs> like, I don't want to pretend that we know the answer to exactly how moderation should be done and what questions should be moderated and what questions. It's not a simple issue because there are things that we don't want on these platforms. Rachel Levine is a public figure. Rachel Levine has a family that she had as a man, and she is now in this role presenting herself... Rachel Levine is the father of children. ...is the father of children. That is right. And the fact that that is a difficult sentence to say and have it be understood is evidence of where we are. It's not the responsibility of the Babylon Bee not to notice this, and it's not the responsibility of Twitter to police it, right? The point is, this is a perfectly legitimate thing to observe is interesting, ironic, funny, bizarre. It is all of those things. And so anyway, Babylon Bee is back. And, you know, again, the, uh, the hand-wringing, the pearl-clutching, the feigning couch-reaching, couch all of right. the stuff that is, that is occurring as a result of it. But, like, Babylon B, having, been, having had its account taken down in March, so over a, half a year ago, for tweeting that Rachel Levine wins their Man of the Year award. Like, that was the offense. They were in Twitter jail for over half a year for that. And, right. and that thing is the lead anecdote in the Washington Post evidence that uh, my computer has, of course, gone back to sleep, so I can't see it, um, in their headlined article, Musk's free speech agenda dismantles safety work at Twitter, insiders say. Right. Because allowing people to see that a satirical site thinks that Rachel Levine should get man of the year is dismantling safety work. Right. It's just the whole idea of, of invoking safety. Yeah. Um, and I would point out a case that we keep uh, referring to, but I still think, you know, the Babylon Bee is back. The Dr. Rollergator account is not. The Dr. Rollergator account was suspended in February for obviously satirically suggesting, uh, I believe, that Jordan Peterson and Justin Trudeau uh, avail themselves of white gloves with which to challenge each other by slapping each other across the face, and that was determined to be violence. And so what you can see in this is that the system has been turned into a partisan with rules that equate satire with violence, and then those rules are used to exclude people from conversation, which then destroys our ability to understand even what those in our community even think, because the conversation is now biased by a set of rules used to drive certain voices out by claiming that they were engaged in violence that they clear, clearly weren't. And um, so anyway, the idea that there is anything noteworthy about somebody unhooking those unfair rules and having no... Uh, um, built-in bias of the structure towards one perspective or another. The idea that that is in and of itself alarming enough to drive people off of Twitter um, or to drive the Washington Post to report multiply on um, the hellscape that is apparently being opened up by free speech, a, a value on which almost all of us used to agree, right, is it's quite something. Mm -hmm. um, all right, are you, are you uh, where you wanted to go with the sure. Washington Post? Sure. Okay, so my main purpose today was to point out a 
dichotomy that I think underlies much of what we are now seeing, um, including the uh, loss of people like Sam and Claire from this discussion. Um, what I think they would say about why they've left is that they've been hounded by people. And if you look on Twitter, you will see that the conventional wisdom about what is true with respect to things on which they've both taken very strong positions has shifted radically. And so what I wanted to talk about is now that we are almost three years into the COVID phase of history, I want to talk about what happened with respect to um, people's intellectual standing and people's intellectual performance. That there's an interesting pattern that I think comes down to a single dichotomy about which we can say a lot of nuanced things, but a single dichotomy that separates those who ended up uh, severely damaging their reputations and those who in the end turned out to be right in spite of what may have been said about them before. Now, obviously, I believe you and I are in that latter category where it is increasingly clear that um, our concerns about the vaccines were, if anything, overcautious, that uh, our skepticism of their utility was well-placed, um, that our belief that there are alternatives that might well have been applied that weren't being used because they weren't profitable seems to be uh, accurate, and our uh, argument that this does not appear to be a natural pandemic, but in fact downstream of a lab leak uh, that is in fact linked to some of the same people who have given us such bad policy with respect to treating and uh, controlling the disease, that that also turns out to be well supported by the evidence. So how the heck did we do it, right? And why did so many others fail to, including Sam and Claire? And the point I want to make is that I think there are really two approaches to um, clear thinking. And it comes down to... <laughs> that's very cute. Um, <laughs> what uh, does one attempt, as is now taught in graduate school in effectively every field as far as I can tell, does one attempt to figure out which model is best and then become expert in applying it? Or does one deploy a model and compare its results to the emerging evidence and adjust the model accordingly and move in the direction of better and better models? Right? And my claim is going to be that our entire expert class was doing the former thing. It was practiced at a game in which it would identify a model that was claimed to be the best. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but such a model. And then it applied that model. It applied it with great nuance sometimes, but it applied that model and it doubled down on it. And at the point that model turns out to be false, they go down with the ship. And that happened in the space of a very short time span with respect to COVID. And often shouting about how they, the ship can't possibly be going down because uh, they were promised, they were assured, they looked into it themselves, the model is right. The model right. must be right. And that is the curious thing about this, is if you check in with these people, you do not get what I would ordinarily expect of intellectuals, which is at least 
grudging acknowledgement that they had taken a position that turned out not to be right. And mm -hmm. maybe I would expect amongst the lower quality ones excuse making about how they got suckered by some piece of evidence that mesmerized them when they should have been looking at something else. But instead what you find is a kind of insistence that no, in fact, they were right and they still are. And so that is going to be the red flag. If your position on COVID hasn't changed radically, then your position isn't your position. It's something else, mm -hmm. right? It's you deploying a position held by something else. And so anyway, what I'm going to argue... Yeah, go ahead. There's... I just want to add in other ways of saying what you're saying whenever it occurs to me. <clears throat> um, in science, in the kinds of science that we were... Uh, trained in and and engaged in in many rooms under many circumstances and in many forests under many circumstances, uh, we were assured that you don't prove a hypothesis correct. Um, that this was you know the falsificationist uh, kind of of science, sort of Popperian thinking, in which uh, you can work very very hard. Uh, to try to falsify an idea, a hypothesis. And if you fail to do that, if you fail to falsify a cherished or not cherished hypothesis after a lot of hard work, you have greater and greater confidence that it is true, but you don't ever completely know that it is true. And so one of the things that I hear you saying here is, um, and, and we talked a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote actually a couple of weeks ago in Natural Sections about the nature of certainty. That, you know, do, do, are you comfortable with an idea? Oh, other people who I am supposed to trust or I do trust say that thing is correct. Therefore, that's it. One hypothesis, one thing, that's it. We're done. Every decision I make is based, you know, every, the decision tree may go on. There may be forks in the future, but that is unchanging. As opposed to, there's an, there's a question, there's an observation, there's a set of things going on. What could explain them? I got hypothesis one, which partially explains this, but doesn't explain that. I got hypothesis two, which is counter to that because it explains things differently and they predict different things. I've got hypothesis three, and you know, especially with something as complex as COVID, the landscape of the last three years, it's, you, you don't just have one set of mutually exclusive hypotheses. There's the question of lab leak, there's the question of uh, vaccine safety, the question of vaccine, vaccine efficacy, of um, off-label treatments of all of the various sorts that we that we have and whether or not they're uh, safe, whether or not they're effective as prophylaxis, as treatment. So, you know, lots and lots of different questions. But for all of them, are you keeping multiple possibilities alive in your mind at once? Or have you concluded, you know what, this is it. Nope. I, I, I will not ever, ever conclude that if it's called a vaccine, it could possibly be anything but safe and effective, for instance. Uh, I think that's very well said, and I would uh, just add to it that one thing that is true is that corrupt science will inherently be verificationist, mm, right? Yeah. That falsificationism yeah. is incompatible. It's, it's almost impossible to do it well, right? You might pretend to be a, a falsificationist, but if you look under the hood, you will find verificationism where, where science has been corrupted. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but... Let me just describe the two models, and you, you will see, I think, why one of them failed so badly with COVID. It always fails, but it failed so badly with COVID. Great. 
The two models are you pick your model of the universe or a particular subset of the universe, some discipline, how does X thing work, and you apply it as an expert, but you don't question it, right? And the other is you start somewhere and you start working towards a better and better model by adjusting, right? Mm. Now, my claim is going to be I don't actually care where you start. It is better to start closer to the target, but any process in which you actually adjust with response to evidence will eventually take you where you are going, and it will very rapidly surpass the static application of anything but an already excellent model. Someone employing a self-correcting process who is farther from the truth is someone you would prefer to follow in their thinking, in their conclusions, than someone who is currently closer to the truth of that matter, but has a, is employing a static model. Right. Now, there is a degree of difference in that if you have a very mature understanding of some set of facts, then the model that somebody adopts wholesale may be pretty good to start with. And so their failure mm -hmm. to adjust may not be a big handicap, right? right? right. Um, but what did we get with COVID? We got a situation where nobody knew anything, right? There were no good models. So the fact that X person's model was three times as good as Y person's model had almost nothing to say about whether it ended up better. Mm -hmm. The question was, are you adjusting your model and improving it, or are you uh, keeping your model static and just applying it? Mm -hmm. And so what I'm going to claim is that all of the people who failed so spectacularly have not substantially changed their opinions. Now, there will be little cases pointed out where people made little adjustments. By and large, the people who uh, say that the vaccines are safe and effective have not changed their tune. They, in fact, started with that as an assumption, and they now report it as a conclusion. And that this is actually evident, you know, it just so happens that I tangled with both Claire and Sam over this issue before there was COVID. Mm -hmm. I tangled with them about the question of whether or not vaccines are inherently safe. And my point is, I, I'm, as I'm still a big believer in this technology. I still think it's one of the most marvelous success stories of Traditional vaccine medicine. technology. Vaccine technology in principle. Okay. However, if vaccines are safe, it is because of a system that prunes the dangerous ones before they get to the public. And we know of multiple failures where vaccines that were not safe got to the public. And we know of many other failures where vaccines um, didn't get to the public but failed in the testing phase. And what that tells you, if vaccines are sometimes not safe, which we discover in testing, and sometimes not safe, which we discover after they've been released to the public, there's nothing inherently safe about this technology, right? So if vaccines are safe, it can only be because of an excellent system that spots the ones that aren't and keeps them away from you. I know we don't have an excellent system, mm -hmm. therefore not safe, right? right? I'm not saying any individual vaccine is harmful, but I'm saying the idea that they are inherently safe is uh, dead on arrival. And so if you adopted that, especially if you had it prior to COVID and then something was pointed at you and you, they said, here is a vaccine, safe and effective. And you, of course it's safe and effective. They all are. No, that's wrong. You've right. already demonstrated that applying your model is going to leave you in, in the, the gutter, right? And it also, you were, you were still gone. No, no, go ahead. Uh, it, it also 
betrays, I think, the hesitation that we saw early in COVID. If, if you can, remember, remember the spring of 2020. And what we were seeing, you know, at that point, we were, we were just beginning our live streams. And it was, you know, there, there was a lot of terror. There was, you know, there was confusion, all of this. But overwhelmingly, one of my senses was exhilaration with regard to the scientific literature. Because the scientific literature was uh, open, there was so there were so many people at that point who, as far as I know, almost no one in the very early days was being shut down yet. Very quickly that started to happen, but the preprint servers were just were just full of papers, and there was so much going on. There was so much research being done that the voices of authority that decide for you which ones are good and which ones aren't, weren't doing the work, right? These hadn't even made it to journals yet, so the peer review process, which is ridiculously broken, wasn't in the way. The editors weren't in the way. The journalists weren't in the way. What you had, if you had the, you know, if, 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 if you had the wherewithal and the interest, as we did, to actually wade into the scientific literature as it was being generated day by day in the spring of 2020, it's like, oh my God, there's so much here. And yeah, we can't possibly assess all of it, but how much preferable it is for us, and it should be for, for anyone, as time consuming as it is, to go to the source and say, does this make sense? Is this research good? As opposed to, well, I don't have time for that. I'm gonna trust this guy who no one had ever heard of before, who happens to run an organization that's under the NIH, who says, no, not that, this, that, and oh, in Fauci we trust. Like that quickly became the thing that people did because they were scared, they were confused, they didn't know, they wanted someone to look at. And that guy had a conclusion a few conclusions that we now can be pretty sure almost all of them were not helpful for humanity. And what we were doing and what some, you know, many people were doing, but mostly not people who were on your screens, were saying, we don't know, we think this, let's see. Let's see what is being learned. And that, that ability to actually look at the scientific literature quickly got, um, got polluted. Of course. Well, it did get polluted. It got it got captured because, yeah. frankly, it, people were paying attention to what we and others were making of this emerging literature, and it got in the way of whatever. I, I still don't have any idea what the actual plan of those who enforced their narrative on us um, was. But yeah. the point is, whatever that force was that was enforcing its narrative, whatever its motivation was, it very quickly figured out that it couldn't very well have us discussing. Um, the the you know pre peer reviewed literature um, with the public oh my goodness right that's too dangerous but yeah. um, I yeah. wanted to point out though I was thinking about the places that I personally have adjusted my understanding in some cases radically in some mm -hmm. cases it has actually flipped it's reversed. And it's a never-ending stream. I spent a couple minutes just thinking this morning about places where I had uh, changed what I understood. Okay. And in fact, I realized that one of our first forays into this, I made a substantial error with respect to my understanding of the science, the actual science. 
which was I believed that because we were dealing with an RNA virus that it transcribed itself into DNA. It reverse transcribed itself and installed itself in the genome, which turns out is not true for coronaviruses. So just to use one of the pieces of jargon that many people will be familiar with, um, you thought and you said on stream, as I remember it, um, that because it was an RNA virus, it was a retrovirus. Yeah. And not true, not how they work. So, okay, embarrassing error for me right away but immediately figured it out and corrected it, right? right? Exactly. All right. I don't know how long I could go listing all of the places where I changed my understanding. Many of them, maybe all of them, I think uh, you share. But nonetheless, I realized my position on the functionality of hydroxychloroquine completely inverted. I yeah. believed... Which we never talked about on air because it just, it just didn't even hit radar really this was actually my yeah. my biggest embarrassment yeah. I do not have a good explanation for how I missed the fact that I was being misled by propaganda on this very useful drug until embarrassingly late but that, anyway that one was remarkably that one got us both in a way that most of the you know things like two weeks to flatten the curve like a lot of things that a lot of people right. accepted like we ne we never believed but somehow the it's a it's a Trump delusion and right. it's hydroxychloroquine, and yeah, you know, there was a flood of information and all this. But yeah, I I I bought that. Yep. I bought I bought it for a long time. Yep. Too long. Yeah, and it's not true. All right. Uh, ivermectin effectiveness. Um, now, mind you, effectiveness on two different fronts, both as a treatment for COVID and as a prophylactic. My position on this has changed. It has changed slightly because one paper that uh, appeared to demonstrate extreme effectiveness did not turn out to be what it appeared to be on first pass. I still think the experiment took place. It gave a compelling result. But because the method section uh, did not provide enough information and the data set when I requested it was not forthcoming. This is the one out of Argentina? Yeah. Okay. The, this, the Carvalho study. The experiment is not reproducible. And so I said... You have to take this piece of evidence and give it zero evidentiary weight because it is essential for science to be repeatable. Um, now, I would make that criticism of many experiments on the other side now, too. But but didn't the LARI uh, meta-analysis remove it and get very much the same results? Or was that, um, that was a different study. Oh, they removed a different um, paper. Okay. Yeah. So okay. because it was not a randomized controlled trial, it wasn't in there in the first place. Oh, right. okay. um, it was a different right. study. But yes, and you know, I had tests on because I wanted people to understand that the fact that you've got a study that yeah. turns out to be fraudulent does not invalidate a meta-analysis that included it. In fact, this is one of the strengths of meta-analysis is that you can simply say, what happens if we exclude this study? What does it do to the result? And the answer was it didn't change it very much. But my position on ivermectin effectiveness has largely changed because ivermectin effectiveness has largely changed. Because the virus changed. Because the virus is, is mutating, as viruses will do, uh, especially with a strong selective force. Well, strong selective force. Now, this one perplexed me. You know, At first, I thought, is it reduced in effectiveness with respect to the later variants because, um, because resistance has evolved, which I initially said I didn't think was going to happen. Yeah. And... Um, 
apparently that is not what's going on. What's yeah. going on is that I feel that like is, what little I understand about ivermectin mechanism of action, it wouldn't be resistance. Resistance is unlikely because yeah. there are multiple mechanisms of action. And so the point is progress against one doesn't substantially alter the fate of the virus in its context. And it's such a broad spectrum anti-parasitic. Right. right? So yeah. what apparently, my understanding, I think largely from Garrett Vandenbosch, is that what happened is the virus adopted a different strategy in which it produced many, many more copies. And so you had to drive the effective dose of ivermectin way up, mm. which then creates side effects, which are not terrible side effects, but nonetheless, you don't want to be using this as a prophylactic at a dose that it's causing like visual side effects and things and like that. it's not that. like you don't become a quadruped and start asking for a saddle. No, that never happened. Oh, okay. um, that was the FDA spreading yeah. misinformation. Incidentally, asterisk for later, I know we're on a roll here, but um, the FDA's lawyers made some interesting claims in court uh, recently about what they did and did not say about ivermectin. Yes, uh, apparently uh, we've uh, got them telling us that... Uh, it was just a recommendation. Yes, just a recommendation. Yeah. Um, but anyway, okay, so my position on ivermectin effectiveness has changed a little bit because my understanding of the evidence changed, but also because ivermectin effectiveness changed. And the point is a model that is updating with evidence then takes on the clinical change in the effectiveness of this drug and incorporates it. A model that is static, that stuff doesn't work at all, remains static. Um, right, well, and mm, the virus is evolving, right? Like, so, so even, even a conclusion that is 100% right at time A, at time B may not be, uh, precisely because the object in question that you were talking about, efficacy against or for or whatever, uh, has changed, and therefore, so should the interaction with it. Right. So, the, so should you expect the interaction with it to be So changed. the point is, a dynamic model is inherently better for two different reasons. One, it gets better with respect to a static set of facts, and two, it's the only game in town with respect to a changing set of facts. Right. Uh, and I don't mean changing as in we know the facts to be different, but changing because something is rapidly evolving, for example, and therefore changing the yeah. utility. Yeah. Um, the next one on my list is mask effectiveness. We were famously early, or I was particularly aggressive on the potential utility of masks, and the, especially the mask that I was suggesting people use, which was practical because it wasn't such an impediment to life. Um, turned out to be essentially useless. Um, cloth mask, um, N95 is better, still not effective, but uh, you know may have some impact. Uh, vaccine effectiveness, I was quite convinced by the initial propaganda, it now seems, that came out of the trials that were used to sell the vaccines to us, that the vaccines were likely to be important in the control of the disease. We mm. now know that they do not have even the most basic characteristics that would be necessary for them to be useful in this regard. Mm -hmm. But I was initially taken in by the propaganda. My position has changed. Yep. Vaccine uh, safety. Uh, I was always alarmed that these things couldn't possibly be safe in the way they were saying because safety doesn't mean harmless. Safety means riskless. And there was an obvious long list of potential risks that couldn't be eliminated at the point these things emerged. So and I was, still can't be. Still can't be. But the point is, I was actually too cautious. Turns out, you know, I was worried uh, that 20 years down the road, we were going to discover a longevity difference between people who had taken these things or some slow pattern of tumors or autoimmunity would emerge. Wow, did that safety signal show up fast. 
Um, so anyway, my position has moved in the direction of, wow, these things, not only are they unsafe by virtue of being risky, but they appear to be doing a huge amount of harm. At the same time, they're not very effective at doing the one thing that was of primary interest, which was controlling the spread of the virus. Um, uh, COVID origin, I initially had a chart that, uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm just, I'm reminded with that last one. So, um, so far, you know, I, I think we, so far, basically we had the same, same positioning on, on almost all of these things. Um, the thing uh, that was used to dismiss those of us who were concerned about COVID vaccine safety and efficacy early on was that we were inherently the same people who minimized the risks of COVID itself. And uh, actually, so our friend Holly has written a piece called, it's such a brilliant title. The End I'm of forgetting. Faith, the End in, of faith Sam Harris. in Sam Harris. And she actually, she does, she does write by us and discusses, um, you know, his claim that we're those people and says, I, I know they're not. You can just look at Dark Horse and see how seriously they were taking COVID, but also I, Holly, know they're not because I had COVID twice and here's how they behave towards me. So uh, the thing that I guess I want to add then to your messaging here is um, the ways that people are dismissed gets lumped into like, you know, oh, if you're A, then you're A plus B. It's like, but, I, but I'm not. And the fact that you can't see that it's possible to be A, not B, suggests, again, that you've been handed a bill of goods, that you've adopted a model that you didn't think through, that you just accepted it, right? That the only way to be, have concern about the safety of the brand new to human experience COVID vaccines was to also be a COVID minimizer uh, is... An absurd position. And the fact is, actually, that I think another place that I at least um, uh, have, have changed my positioning over time in the almost three years is at first, we're like, oh God, you know, what is this? No, it's not the flu. It's different. It seems to be worse, not clear. No, it's definitely not a cold. But the fact, again, is that not only do we have more information now, but we also have a change in the disease itself. Now, long COVID is, is real and dangerous. And unfortunately, at this point, it's also true that because both uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the mRNA vaccines are using the spike protein as the thing that, uh, well, SARS-CoV-2 isn't using the spike protein, but that is present in both of them. And it's because that is the source of so much of the cytotoxicity. Uh, it's it's hard in many cases to tell the difference between you know oh do you have long COVID or are you vaccine injured right it can it can it can it is at least potentially hard to tell right it's a, it's a confound it's it's potentially hard to tell but it does seem that if you don't for whatever reason your genetics your lack of comorbidities. Uh, your ability to treat early with all the things that we know you can treat early with, uh, have a mild case of COVID and don't have lingering effects, it doesn't have to be a big deal, except that we still don't know what the long-term effects, very long-term effects might be. Yep. Um, I would say that there's a big lurking question to the extent that people are trying to apply uh, 
what we're talking about, you know, okay, how am I not going to be on the wrong side of this? How am I going to build an active model that gets better over time, especially if you're not somebody trained in a relevant field? Mm-hmm. Well, part of the trick is figuring out how to proxy trust and revoke it if somebody doesn't do this job very well. But I would say one question that remains very active in my mind is what are the chances that if we hadn't deployed the vaccines, we'd be done? That this would legitimately have burned itself out. And while that will sound fanciful, can you be here saying it would not have become endemic? I am saying that because, let me point something out, Wuhan 1, it's gone. It's extinct. And so the question is, did herd immunity drive Wuhan 1 to extinction? So I've never heard that term before. I can extrapolate what you mean. Wuhan 1, you're, you're basically the, <laughs> it's not wild type, but no. like, you know, if, if SARS-CoV-2 hadn't been frank-engineered in a, in a lab, it would be the wild type, the original virus that, yeah. uh, that we were all dealing with in spring 2020. Right. So that thing is, yeah. and, you know, I will say that there is a complex set of questions around viral swarms, which I think yeah. are not well dealt with and mm-hmm. need to be understood. But one very live possibility, according to my model, and who knows, next week I may understand why my model is wrong and therefore this line of inquiry doesn't make sense. But one very live possibility is that if we had done nothing that drove the evolution of these uh, these viruses, that we would be done by virtue of herd immunity, which would have been painfully acquired with many, many deaths, but nonetheless, we'd be finished. And that the very... Finished with the virus, not finished as humanity. Right. Finished with the virus. Mm-hmm. COVID would have burned itself out, right? Um, we'll never know. I don't know that we'll never know. I think we will never know for sure. I think the point is this is a tractable question. This is a studyable question. And what we have done by deploying a cartoonishly narrow vaccine is we have amplified the evolutionary signal. We have asked the we have asked evolution to play a game that it is master of mm-hmm. right not only can you adapt but can you adapt to something stupidly narrow of course you can right easily and again and again so um so in any case this is a place where yeah. and i'm going to argue that the the right way to think about these complex problems is to get over your instinct to leap to a conclusion to leap to a conclusion of any kind, really, mm-hmm. right? The point is, you should maintain these things probabilistically, and yeah, the, tough for people, right? So tough for people, but because people want certainty, this I know. Well, so that that is true. It is true. That's what people want. But you know, I used to I used to play this game with our kids, where if they said something <laughs> with <know>. certainty. <laughs> I used to say, what do you think the probability is that that's not true? And of course, Or how certain are you? For very young children, the answer 100%. is... 100%. Of course. And the answer is, right. no, you just screwed up. You just told me something wrong. Yeah. You're, the probability should not be zero. It might be a tiny yeah. fraction of 1%, yeah. right? A tiny fraction. But, and you know, I mean... It, Let's um, very young children. You expect that answer, and you know, of course. But, but the point is, you got to break that habit. Right. You got to break that habit, and what we have, and you did that, is an an adult expert class that we are now detecting never got that lesson. Right. They and so what this does is it creates a yeah. very bad mechanism for thinking that is cryptic in any place where your intellectual ancestors have done a decent job. Right. So the point is, if you walk into physics. 
right? Mm -hmm. And you adopt the standard model. The standard model is pretty good. It's pretty predictive and you can become expert at it, but you're not going to extend it if what you're doing is taking on that model and using it as a set of assumptions, which is fair. But if that's all you do, then the point is you can't detect where this thing doesn't work. Right. Right. You're just going to keep applying it and you're going to, you're going to rationalize it. If you really don't know anything about the philosophy of science or the history of science, preferably mostly the philosophy. If you have to choose one, it's the philosophy of science. You probably can't do science well because you don't, don't have the model for what it looks like when there is uncertainty. Um, I agree with that. And I also think it's a, it's a, little, a little tough to say for sure. But one thing that is true, you mentioned Holly's excellent essay mm -hmm. on Sam. And one of the things that she says in that essay is that Sam was an intellectual hero to her and that twice Sam had delivered something into the world that had revolutionized her world for the better, mm -hmm. right? One of these things was the questioning of faith and the other was his treatment of lying. Mm -hmm. And her point was now she is forced to part ways with her intellectual hero because her intellectual hero is doing things that not only are unacceptable, but don't fit with his own stated beliefs on these things before without acknowledging that he's changed. But here's the funny thing about that. He's not the only close friend of ours who's said this. This is a common phenomenon. And um, Wait, he's not the only close friend of ours who said sorry. what? She, oh, okay. Holly, is okay. not the only close friend of ours. If I said he, that was just, uh, because the other friend I'm thinking of okay. is a he. <laughs> but I, I think this is a relatively uh, common position where people who got something from Sam, because he was good at this in some regard, are now stuck in the position of having to try to, A, grapple with, well, what was the stuff that I believed that was important before. Mm -hmm. If he's now speaking in direct violation of it, if he's, if he's effectively okay with a conspiracy against Trump, you know, in the 2020 election, yeah. um, then he's obviously not against lying. So yeah. what was his whole treatment of lying, yeah. right? So what was that? But um, anyway, what I'm going to argue is if you are one of these people who, whether you always did or something about recent history has caused you to embrace a, I'm going to find the best model and I'm going to stick with it no matter what, mm -hmm. right? If you do that, then a couple things are true. One, you, A, we can spot that you're doing it because if you think about how such a person would change their mind, right, you would have basically a threshold question. Have you reached the point where the thing that you thought was uh, less than 50% likely is now more than 50% likely, at which point you would have to acknowledge a change? Mm -hmm. Until then, there's no nuance. As long as you think it's less likely to be true um, than the competitor, we don't see your changing understanding of anything, right? If the only thing you're reporting is a binary. Is a binary, exactly. Mm -hmm. Then the point is two things. One, there's this totally arbitrary threshold at 50% where your opinion appears to suddenly snap into the other confirmation. Mm -hmm. That's not how thinking works, right? Two, you're much more easily gamed, right? Because the thing is, how do you keep somebody who is using this cruddy mechanism for thinking on your team, 
All you got to do is feed them enough garbage to keep them from hitting the threshold. It doesn't have to be perfect. They can have their own private doubts. But the point is, you just feed them enough bullshit that they don't hit 50% and flip. Yeah. Right? And so um, I think we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, for one thing, we know that Sam proxied uh, part of his understanding to Eric Topol. Right? Eric mm-hmm. Topol is um, Christian Anderson's boss. So he has a perverse incentive that goes back to lab leak, right? This isn't somebody you should proxy to. Likewise, Anthony Fauci, right? Anthony Fauci is uh, the person who offshored the work to Wuhan to get around the ban on gain-of-function research. Right, but why does he show up here? You're talking about him proxying his or him being a proxy for someone? Being a proxy. that For, what, for a lot of people. Yeah, so you have COVID descends. Nobody knows anything about it. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to listen to the people who know the most about it. Mm-hmm. Well, who is that? One of them is Anthony Fauci. Oh, mm-hmm. good choice. You know why? Because he stood there with his head in his hands while Trump was saying crazy things, mm-hmm. right? So Anthony Fauci becomes super reliable because he's the opposite of Trump. And of course, that's a brilliant way to get Sam's attention, right? <laughs> so the point is, okay, I'm going to proxy to that guy because he feels the same about Trump as I do, mm-hmm. right? Okay, well then, Anthony Fauci now has a direct line into whoever's listening to Sam, right? Mm. So, much better if we were able to tune into the, oh boy, I said these things were safe, but now I've seen a few things. I still think they're probably safe, but wow, I don't, I'm not as convinced of that as I was because I've seen a few things that caused me to wonder, right? That's the natural process. Right. Um, but no, but no public revelation. Instead, instead we get some some garbage excuse like, "Well, I'm not going to get boosted because the CDC lies." And right, but it, that's that's a non sequitur. It doesn't make any sense. It's it's not an argument. Right. It's what it is is evidence of not thinking. And my, and yeah. my overarching point is, we saw our entire expert class reveal that they were not thinking that they were doing something else, at least in this case. And I would argue that probably that's because it's the habit of thinking that they got into. Mm -hmm. And if what you did was uh, looked at the the competitors to this and said, who are these people? And what exactly do they think they know? And Mm -hmm. the answer is, it doesn't really matter. If they're using the equivalent of selection to build a model that works from any starting place, they will quickly outpace a group that has proxied in the early days of a chaotic situation where nobody knows anything. So the best model they could possibly have embraced was bad. Yep. Right? And the idea that anybody is sticking with their initial impression of vaccines, of repurposed drugs, of COVID origins, of any of these things, of the evolution of variants, of any of them. Nobody could possibly be making headway with their initial model because there just simply wasn't enough to go on to build a decent model. So the only people, the only game in town is people whose thinking evolves by a process that really is very parallel to natural selection. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's really the core point is what do you trust to build your model, right? Do you trust picking the right one? You know, well, that can work great if a bunch of really refined models exist and, you know, none of them are full of corrupt garbage. Yeah. But any other situation, no, I want something that irrespective of what model I've ended up in can morph into a model that works. That's what I want. Yeah. And, um, and the problem is, I think the, uh, the propaganda engine was very good at portraying 
the process of evolution as evidence that it was not valid. In other words, well, if this thing makes errors, right? Ah, uh, well, and and you know, and that's that's classic media response, right? <clears throat> who was it? Who was it who, in part, lost the presidential election because he was accused of being a flip flopper? Oh, was that John Kerry. That would be. I think that was John Kerry. Yeah. yeah. So, whenever that was, um, you know, the idea that you've changed your mind as a politician, that that's going to be the thing that means you can't hold office. Like, I'm not saying that John Kerry would or would not have been an excellent president, but the idea that having changed your mind and being on record saying one thing and then later saying a different thing, well, that's just too far. Like, that that tells us, like, if people can be fooled by that, then we then people can be fooled by anything. Yep. If, 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 if they really believe that changing your opinion as a politician... Is should mean that you should not be in high office. Well, then we're done. We're doomed, frankly. Right, right. Yeah. It, it, it is a poison pill for anything that would function the right way. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to uh, close out this section with a couple of observations. One, I wanted to um, point out, there's something that I, you've heard me say it many times, I think I've said it quite a number of times on Dark Horse, that um, if you say something that is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. If you get something wrong, the process of admitting that you got it wrong is very painful for all of us. But some of us are good at it. Why are we good at it? Because the pain that you experience in publicly having to reverse yourself is such a tiny fraction of the burden that comes to you if you refuse to correct it, that it's a bargain. Mm -hmm. Expensive as it is, it's a bargain, right? Now, if you do it all the time, people will correctly infer that you're not doing thinking very well because you're constantly having to correct yourself. But if you do your work well so that you don't have to correct yourself that often, and then you do correct yourself when you need to, that actually increases people's trust in you because they know why you're trustworthy, which is that you'll fix it if you got it wrong, and you'll right. alert them, right? So here's the crazy thing about that. I don't know how many times I've said that, but I've given that riff many, many times in many contexts. I also believe Sam has given that riff, that riff <laughs> almost exactly, right? Mm -hmm. He has described this process, which means that at the very least, his conscious mind is aware of this relationship. Now, I think he's caught in a bind. I think Sam has two ideological commitments in conflict. He's a little bit like Hal in 2001 that has two conflicting programs. Um, <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Okay. I just think that may be the first time that, that those two characters have been uh, possibly compared possibly. to one another. <laughs> but I think Sam has a belief in institutions, which I understand because, frankly, we're really screwed if they don't work. But punchline, they don't work. Right. Not a one. They're all busted. and some We're of more us, screwed if they don't work, and most of us are pretending that they do. Right. That's, that's the, worse. That's the worst of both worlds. Yes. So I think Sam has a desire to recognize what's wrong with the institutions, fix them, and get back to work. Mm -hmm. And I think the point is it's way later than you think, Sam. Those institutions are way more corrupted than you understand. They're not coming back, right? And you don't want any part of them because they will do to you what they just did to you with COVID, right? They will mm -hmm. mislead you, and they will turn you into a fool. Right? That's not what you want to do. Yeah. So at the same time that he has a commitment to the idea that institutions are the way that we prevent oblivion, which I think is not wrong, right? That we need institutions that work to prevent us from arranging oblivion for ourselves. He's also 
um, committed to the idea that when you get stuff wrong, you should correct it. And that these two things are in competition and that his move this week to leave is about one of these things having one out over the other and it's the exact wrong one. These institutions don't work. They won't be rebooted. And trying, you know, rationalizing that they're still close enough to functional that you can invest more in them and maybe, you know, put them right is not a viable thing. And I think, frankly, the alternative that the institutions are so far gone that you should do a proper accounting, correct your model, and apologize for what you got wrong, explain how it happened and rejoin the conversation is the right thing to do. And Sam is headed 180 degrees away from it. Yeah. He chose the wrong alternative at this moment. Instead of absenting himself from this conversation, he should pay the price of getting back into reality space, and he should move forward, and he should contribute to the conversation as he did, and you know, affecting people the way he has affected good friends of ours um, by altering their understanding of the world. That would be the right thing to do. And I, you know, I hope that some time contemplating this off of Twitter causes him to realize that. And, you know, again, I hope people, if he does do the right thing here, people will be generous to him and they will, you know, not fail to notice how wrong he got things, but understand how it is that that happened. Um, I think that would be really important. The last thing I wanted to do here is connect this to what we are seeing with Elon Musk. Because I think if we take the model that you and I just talked about, where there are two kinds of thinking, there's one kind of thinking that takes a model and applies it and becomes expert in how to apply it, but doesn't change it, doesn't question it. And there's another model where you use evolution to get to reason. I think it explains some of what we're seeing with Musk in a way that is at least worth contemplating. Mm -hmm. Um, So it goes kind of like this. Musk buys Twitter there's some very interesting, uh, I won't say cloak and dagger stuff exactly, but some four-dimensional chess in the purchasing of Twitter, on again, off again, you know, he buys it. It was a surprise, right? And then mm-hmm. he uh, carries the sink in the front door and things go crazy. Suddenly people are, you know, it's hemorrhaging employees, except wait a second, is it really hemorrhaging if those employees weren't doing anything? Right? Oh, Twitter's going to collapse. Or they're doing the opposite of what they should have been doing? Right, exactly. So, okay, how much is Musk not in control of his ship versus how much does Musk understand exactly what this is and he's getting rid of these people because he knows that he can't fix Twitter if they're still at their desks or at least able to log in or whatever it is that they were doing. So anyway, when let me acknowledge something about my model. I don't know that Musk is for real. I am behaving like Musk is for real because if he isn't, I don't know what the alternative play is. Mm-hmm. We are in a very dire situation. Without any institutions that function, without any places where we can discuss what's true, there isn't a good plan for how to fix the direction we're headed. We're in very serious trouble. So I want Musk to be for real because I think it's very important that Twitter become the first place that we can have a rational discussion in who knows how long. I am not going to delude myself into believing that he's for real because it would be great and really important if he was. In other words, I maintain this as it's not motivated reasoning because it's not affecting my estimation of how likely he is to be for real. I am just maintaining this as this is worth, it's, it's a little bit like the puzzle 
if you are in a canoe and you are headed towards a waterfall that will kill you when you go over it, do you paddle toward shore? Yes. Do you paddle toward shore if there is a 98% chance that your paddling will be futile? Yes. Do you continue to paddle toward shore if there is a 99.9999% chance that it will be futile? Yes. In fact, until you know for sure that there's nothing you can do, you paddle because what else have you got? So, yeah. Unless you're looking for death, you fight for your life until you can't fight anymore. Right. You do it. And that's, frankly, evolution has built us to do that. Mm -hmm. Right? You do it. Um, so, I'm hoping that he's for real. I believe I see evidence that he's for real, but I believe that evidence is confusing people, and it's confusing people for exactly the reason that they were confused by us during COVID, all right? So, mm. if you look at, when I say on Twitter something like, zero is a special number, this is a very important battle that's going on, really we should be backing his play, all of these things, I get responses that are like, you don't understand, he's just like the rest of them, Right? He's as enmeshed in the machine as anybody, blah, 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 blah. And they come up with examples, right? You know, Ukraine, right? Ukraine is obviously not the story that we understood. It's not just simply a tyrant having attacked innocent people and the president isn't a, you know, gloriously handsome, courageous freedom fighter and all the bullshit that we were sold, the, you know, the, the Ukrainian pilot who was knocking Russians out of the sky, you know, left and right. All of this was just some, it, it was wag the dog, right? Doesn't tell us what the real story is, but there's some real story and that ain't it, mm -hmm. right? Well, Musk provided Starlink to Ukraine for military purposes. So is that an invalidation of the idea that Musk is on the right side because he's invested in this garbagey war, whatever its meaning is, as anybody else? Likewise, you know, there's some famous tweet about vaccines where he goes all in on the idea that we should be vaccinating people for COVID as a mechanism for controlling it, right? So anyway, there are all of these cases where he or, you know, his belief in uh, um, Neuralink and, you know, basically linking brains to computers. Is this a good idea or is this the end of the world? Here's my point. I think the most parsimonious explanation for this human being's behavior is that he is a very smart, very independent thinker who is using an evolving mode in order to get to better and better models. And that, um, oh boy, I just lost the key piece of this. Uh, oh, the bias towards action. So there's this phrase in startup world, bias towards action. Uh -huh. And the idea is, yes, you could spend more and more time trying to think of better and better ways to make your thing launch, right? Or at some point, you could say it is time to take the imprecise thing we've got and launch it and then move forward, you know, use the momentum to get somewhere. And obviously, you don't want no thinking in advance of action, but a bias towards action means that this person is actually biased in the direction of executing. So Musk clearly has an incredible bias towards action, a number of projects that he has uh, you know, brought to viability is incredible, and the nature of those products is impressive. I mean, you know, okay, you're going to go after the auto industry, and you're going to convert some large fraction of, you know, the moving back and forth to electric, and there are no gas stations, so how are you going to, how does anybody drive anywhere without gas stations? Well, we'll do that part, right? Mm -hmm. So he's a bias towards action guy, 
who has an evolving model, and all of the places where people say, nah, he's just like the others, are cases where he's said something that he thought was right based on what he had, and his model has moved on, and maybe he hasn't updated exactly, but nonetheless, I think the point is, maybe he actually is for real, and maybe this play is what it looks like, and maybe, you know, he's now updating his model from the inside of he's Twitter. He's willing to be wrong and more than willing to update. Right. And boy, do I hope that's right, because why are we in trouble if it's not? Yeah, I, I hope that's right, too. Um, I actually have one more piece that's going to seem like a total non sequitur to yep. add to the two type of people in the world argument that you've made here, which analogizes it to how people play Wordle. Mm, Do you know Wordle? Barely. Okay. So um, for the uninitiated, of which I figured you might sort of be, uh, and which I can therefore assume some people in the audience are, it's a single-player word game created a few years back by this Welsh engineer named Wardle. Um, and for his girlfriend, I think, um, although it bears similarity to some older games, <clears throat> pre-internet games, and the New York Times bought it this year, and so it's really, it's mostly, you can get it not behind a paywall, but the New York Times now limits, you can play like one a day. Basically, you have six tries to guess a five-letter word, and for each of your guesses, all of which have to be legitimate English words, in each of the five-letter positions, you are told whether that letter doesn't exist in the word at all, gray box, uh, exists in the word but not in the position you put it in, a yellow box, or not only does that letter exist in the word, the answer word, but you got it in the right position, a green box. And uh, here, Zach, I'm going to ask you to show my screen. So this is just from the Wikipedia entry on Wordle. This is an example of uh, a game in which someone's first guess was Arise, the answer was Rebus, they got it in six tries. But you can see here, um, so usually when people report out um, their answers, you see people reporting out without the letters in the words, their answers, which is just a combination of gray, yellow, and green squares, which is the first time, I, which is the first way that I ran into Wordle, is people reporting out these just, it looked like hieroglyphs. Like, I couldn't tell what it was. But you can see in this game that, that someone played and then put on Wikipedia, uh, the second word guessed has an initial letter of R, and each subsequent guess also has an initial letter of R. The person here used the strategy of, I know that's an R, I'm never going to guess anything but R, because R is R. Mm. R is there. So this is an example of a game that I found online. I just went through Twitter for people looking at, uh, looking for people having posted their answers. This is a standard sort of thing that you'll see on Twitter. This is how I think most people are playing Wordle. As soon as you get a green square, again, the second line there, the second line, the second position, as soon as you get a green square, you stick. You never try anything else. This is not the best way to end up figuring out what your word is going to be. So I went and just played one game, and it looks a little bit different, and unfortunately I got too lucky the first time. So this is, this is actually the better approach that is more likely to end mm. with you at truth ultimately, but may have you living in deep uncertainty with nothing right in the interim. So my first guess here... I happen to guess something where four of my letters are correct, but only one of them is in the right position. For my second guess, even though I only was missing one letter, and maybe this wasn't even exactly the right move here, but because I only had the one New York Times, anyway, I only had the one thing, I picked another word 
with five common letters, none of which I had already used, mm. to see if any of them were in the correct answer, right? And they weren't. And that allowed me actually to go like, okay, what's left, what's left? And so, you know, this is not a perfect example because it makes it look too clean. Uh, and that's not usually how it's going to be. You're going to have a lot more uncertainty early on. But um, hold on, one more, Zach. Um, just put my screen back on for a second. Um, and then this is, so by contrast, this one is a perfect example of why this doesn't work. This is just another one I ran into today on Twitter. Like, okay, this person guessed their first guess two of the letters are right, one of them's in the right position. Their second guess, four of the letters are in the right position. They didn't get it, they didn't win. Mm. They, didn't solve the, they didn't solve the wordle because instead, like and unlike COVID, where there's a lot of complexity and it changes over time, in wordle, like, oh, you know, in that case, the first, second, fourth, and fifth positions, you always will know that. And no amount of other guessing is gonna take that away from you. For God's sake, people, don't stick with those four letters. You're learning nothing. You're learning nothing by continuing to put those same letters into those same positions over and over and over again. Find words that have as little in common with the information you already have and try those out. See how those fit. Mm, that's really interesting. So what you're effectively describing is a mental algorithm that keeps you stuck on a low peak. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That, and that is highly relevant to what we've been talking about. I think so. And it also yeah. is relevant. One of the things that I think is a problem for Sam is that Sam, in his own mind, imagines that he's perfectly consistent. Right. Sam is a bundle of contradictions, right? A guy who believes that there is exactly zero free will, but that it is very important that we be vigilant about moral issues is in conflict with himself. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. If you say, I believe these two things, I know them to be mutually exclusive, I believe they both have some truth, and I don't know how they reconcile. I'm interested, I don't know, but I'm not giving up either one of these things because I don't think either one of them is so wrong that it needs to be thrown out, mm -hmm. right? That's something you can hear, right? You know, or Jordan Peterson, right? Jordan Peterson does this well, right? Do you believe, you know, in, uh, you know, a God who answers prayers? I act as if I do, right? Right. The point is that's how you do this. You mm -hmm. don't claim that my belief system is consistent across the board. Right. You say, here's a zone where I'm relatively confident. Here's a zone where I'm relatively confident. The thing in between is a place I can't be confident because I can see as well as anyone else it doesn't fit, right? And so that, that ability to get from a low peak to a higher peak mm -hmm. is, I believe, tantamount to how much of your own uncertainty you can tolerate. Exactly. Right? Yes. Like, you need to be able to live in the uncertainty. And, you know, Frank, part, part of why, for instance, people who have actually traveled, including, you know, immigrants who have actually lived in two very different countries, but people who have traveled and not just gone to the Disney version of, you know, your home uh, in whatever place it is, but actually traveled, what you're doing is going into uncertainty and saying, I'm going to have to be okay with this. And frankly, people who travel a lot are indicating something about their personality, which says, I'm more than okay with this. I, I kind of love the uncertainty. I love the serendipity. I love the opportunity to learn things that I did not see coming. Yep. And I will, uh, if I can um, pat myself on the back, I think one of my better skills, one of the reasons that I do well in this game is that I have a preternatural capacity to file questions as open 
and leave them there literally for decades sometimes. Yeah. And the experience is you even forget that you've got a question active. It's simmering so low on a back burner mm -hmm. that you don't even really think of it. Mm -hmm. But it isn't closed. You haven't leapt to a conclusion just to close it out. And then years later, sometimes decades later, the thing that you didn't know emerges and just the cascade of like, oh, that completes and then it has all of these effects on the other things that you weren't able to put together. It's a marvelous, it's a marvelous uh, experience. Yeah. And I think it really is a question of um, we have a bad habit. Our bad habit is leaping to conclusions and that happens at every scale. Mm -hmm. um, and basically to the extent that you have that tendency, um, it's, it's an Achilles heel. And I would also say that the flip side of this, the way, you know, we, we alluded to this earlier, but the way not to fall into this trap is very socially dangerous, but it's straightforward, which is to file things as possibilities, right? So if we talk about, for example, conspiracy theories, you should be able to take every conspiracy theory and you should be able to say, well, what I may believe, let's take, uh, let's take a good one, right? The moon landing was fake. Mm. I don't believe the moon landing was fake. I believe we landed on the moon. I believe it was a profoundly important historical event. But I don't rate the chances that it was fake at zero, mm. right? In fact, I've delved into that conspiracy theory and I've noticed there are actually some pieces of evidence in it I don't know how to answer, right? Things that are important. So I have a very low probability that actually what I was handed in terms of the moon landing is obscuring another truth, right? But just as when you would ask our, our boys when they were younger, um, they mostly don't need to be asked this anymore, right? Right? At 18 and 16, uh, you know, how certain are you of that? An answer of 100% or of 0% is basically a non-starter, yep. right? So there are things that, you, you know, do I have knees? Yeah, I'm 100% sure of that. Um, but there is very little that goes into any kind of complexity space that you should rank as a 0% or 100%. Well, I've got to say. The knees, you're going to go after the knees, yep, aren't you? I'm going I, after the I knees. I know, as soon as I said it. Um, yep. <laughs> well, the reason yeah. to do it, yeah, of course, as soon as you said it, you can spot, and I'm sure given a minute and a half, you will mm -hmm. find your own you know, reason to reserve a very tiny percentage chance that you don't have knees. But... <laughs> Uh, well, all right, here, yep. but he, you, you haven't heard this from me yet. I've been holding it back, and all I'm right. not going to fully explore it here, but I will give you the tantalizing tidbit. Um, I have been mocking people, including Elon Musk, for his claim that there's a good chance we're living in a simulation. Okay? Um, for one thing, his logic here, which is common to other people, is garbage, right? The logic is, well, the number of simulations has to outnumber the number of real universes by a huge amount. Therefore, statistically speaking, this is probably one, right? Which is such a bad argument, right? It's really, really bad because, hey, we don't know that there are any simulations of any level of depth that have ever existed. So there may be one universe and no simulations, which means that all the universes are real. So anyway, whatever. You can you can take that apart. However, I had the very uncomfortable experience a couple weeks ago of realizing that although I still think the chances that we are living in a simulation are really, really tiny, 
that the chances that we are living in a simulation took a giant leap forward in my own understanding, even though I really don't like the idea and will be so disappointed. This point true. of order, I feel like giant leap forward is like final solution, which is one of these phrases you really shouldn't <laughs> use out of context. Yeah. <laughs> even Mao didn't say giant leap forward, did he? Um, no. So anyway, it's something, you know, the chances that we were living in a simulation to me was like one in 10,000. Okay. Um, maybe one it, in a hundred thousand. Yeah. What happened? Uh, I realized that some relatively commonly accepted uh, observations are consistent with this in a way, so that I still think it's less than 1% chance, but it took a giant leap in the right direction. I will come back to this. <laughs> I, I told you I'm not going to provide the evidence yet. I want to run it by a couple of people and just make sure that I'm not, you know, I haven't lost my mind. Um. Okay. <laughs> because at the moment you sound like you have. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, okay, final, final thing from my perspective. I promised uh, to... Well, we're, I mean, we got some more stuff to talk about. But, All right. Um, well, then we can, uh, we can reserve this final, final thing. Well, it is kind of late. Uh, I guess I wanted to, I wanted to finish on pairs, mm. if I may. A brief thing on pairs. Um, but first, I already alluded to the um, FDA claim that the FDA telling people not to take ivermectin was just a recommendation. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to very quickly, and I'll link to the um, Epic Times article on this in the show notes, a reminder of some of the things that are true, many of which we talked about. Here on Dark Horse, the FDA created a webpage in 2021 titled Why You Should Not Use Ivermectin to Treat or Prevent COVID-19, and later posted a link to the page on Twitter with the text, you are not a horse, you are not a cow, seriously, y'all, stop it. It was the y'all that really made that tweet. Y'all, yeah. <laughs> a second Twitter post from the FDA was, hold your horses, y'all. Ivermectin may be trending, but it still isn't authorized or approved to treat COVID-19. And on a separate page, the FDA stated, Q, should I take ivermectin to prevent or treat COVID-19? A, no. Okay, so that and we have heard from many doctors uh, and um, have experienced that doctors were, you know, shunned and scared into not writing ivermectin prescriptions at all. And those who did were being told uh, by pharmacists, by their patients, that the pharmacist would not fill them. So uh, this was, and that was because the FDA had this, you know, shame and fear campaign going on. Uh, but from one of the government's lawyers quoted, quote, sorry, the cited statements were not directives. They were not mandatory. They were recommendations. They said what parties should do. They said, for example, why you should not take ivermectin to treat COVID-19. They did not say you may not do it. You must not do it. They did not say it's prohibited or it's unlawful. They also did not say that doctors may not prescribe ivermectin. That's it. All right. This suggests a marvelous new government-instigated uh, game called Simon Didn't Say. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, actually, and, and Malone has predicted that we would soon be hearing a great chorus of, well, we didn't force you to take the vaccines, um, which I believe is coming as well. Yeah. And, you know, I was... I ran, I ran into even more sort of Hollywood and uh, entertainment royalty this week who, you know, last year mostly, not not recently, but got on the vaccine bandwagon and either strongly urged people or said yes to mandates. People like George Clooney and Dolly Parton who are, you know, widely beloved. 
uh, who I yep. uh, well, I will say Hollywood is the most intense intellectual echo chamber on the planet by far. The degree to which yeah. the, you know no defections are tolerated and these people right. are guilty of this well our model was what fauci says goes and we're not budging the degree you know i saw i i guess it was a recent interview in which george clooney was questioned about no that's i i think somehow that's doing the rounds again with us from 2021 oh it is okay mm -hmm. well then i uh hopefully george clooney who i like and respect is smart enough to have seen through this by now if mm -hmm. not george uh look back into it um but actually this does bring me to the uh the final bit i wanted to get to which has to do with what to do with the died suddenly film mm. that emerged uh last week I think this this week sometime. Yeah, um, you have seen it. The film I did. I did watch yeah, it. I did so too. it was a it was a Twitter premiere somehow. Right? I think they premiered it on Twitter. Uh, it's like I don't, a th I don't think it was a Twitter premiere. I think it was announced on Twitter and it was a Rumble premiere, but that doesn't really matter. It premiered somewhere this week. You and I have both seen it. I will tell you, I accidentally I was watching on my phone, and there was I was trying to get out of a mode in which you saw all of the comments scrolling through. Mm -hmm. And I hit a button that I did not realize was retweet. And the next comment I saw was, Brett Weinstein has retweeted this. Mm. So I immediately deleted that tweet. But anybody who saw it because they have an alert yep. targeted at me or because of the vagaries of Twitter, yep. don't take that as any indication of anything. It was not intentional. And you can tell that because I deleted it within seconds. Um, but I did want to give some guidance on how to think about this thing. I had a conclusion. You and I have not talked about what your conclusion yeah. might be. So just, I mean, for those, it's called Died Suddenly, and it's it's about uh, the effects that the filmmakers um, purport to see um, from a variety of sources uh, of the widespread adoption of the COVID vaccines. Right. Now, I am alarmed about this documentary, uh, I would say, at two levels of alarm. One, I believe it contains something potentially very, very important. And it has fused that something to things that make it suspect. Yeah. The thing that I think is very important, and I'm not saying that this is true, but I'm saying it would be so easy to falsify if it wasn't true, that if we can't falsify it, that's going to tell us something. That is a kind of piece of information. The thing that it brings to light that one needs to take seriously is the possibility that morticians are seeing in cadavers a novel kind of what is being described as a clot, but it's not really a clot. These white fibrous. White fibrous, extremely large artery and vein blocking Both. Yep. masses. You might call them plaques. But in any case, the idea, the basic... But the, the, the have internal coherence and so can be pulled out of a cadaver. Be, of, of right, the, and they apparently have... And the, not just the veins, but the arteries, which is yeah, odd. The consistency yeah. of rubber bands or calamari um, is how they're being described. Now, I saw, the first place I encountered this was Stephen Crowder interviewed one of the same morticians who mm. was talking about his observation and alarm and his talk with other uh, morticians. And what I would say is... This film, made by a guy named Stu, S-T-E-W, Peters, is mm -hmm. it? That's right. Um, 
He's at least one of the producers. Yeah. Right. Who I don't follow. I don't even really recognize him, except that there was an earlier thing where he was involved in advancing a story about snake venom and uh, mm-hmm. the vaccines that turned out to be nonsense. Um, a story that we also didn't uh, back or believe in. Mm-hmm. In any case, the um, mortician reports these calamari-like clots. There's lots of footage of them, not only preserved in vials, but in this film, there's footage of them being pulled from cadavers. Could that be faked? Of course it could be faked. On the other hand, it it, it raises a relatively obvious question. Are there morticians who are not seeing this, who will come forward and say, yeah, not seeing it in my mortuary, right? There ought to be lots of those if this is fake. And what I will tell you is that people that I don't know well, but that I'm in conversation with, have friends in the the so-called death care industry who validate the story that these things exist. So if these things exist, and the timing of them is what it appears to be, which is to say, not consistent with it being a COVID phenomenon, yes, consistent with it being a post-vaccine phenomenon, then it needs to be investigated. It is utterly unambiguous that this is an important question. And the problem is that this film overtly almost fuses it to utter nonsense, right? It fuses it. There's like a montage in the beginning with Bigfoot and 9-11 stuff, and I can't remember what else, but it was like a smorgasbord. I don't know how you pronounce that, smorgasbord. I think only if you're the the chef and the Muppets do you pronounce it that way. I am not. But in any case, it fuses it to these other things. And um, So I I read that as there's lots of kooky ideas out there, and some of them turn out to be true. Right. With Um, with them not... I, I read that opening montage... Generously, perhaps, perhaps too generously, as we, the makers of this film, may or may not believe in the, you know, conspiracy theories that you will associate with footage of 9-11, of Sasquatch, of the moon landing, of this, that, the other, but, uh, you know, of the Kennedy assassination. And let me just, you know, add that one in there because, you know, Kennedy assassination, which is one that I think a large proportion of Americans are like, yeah, that was Yes, <laughs> especially Americans with brains. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I would say, actually... Let, let me just add one in there where like, I'm comfortable saying, yeah, that is not what the Warren Commission said it was. Right. Right. My point would be, unfortunately, I think your mind is playing a trick on you where it is rationalizing away an unforgivable mm. um, connection, right? If this calamari clot thing is for real, then it needs to exist on its own so that we can figure out what it implies about the rest of our models of this thing that we didn't know yet. To in any way bring it close to anything preposterous like Bigfoot, which I would rate the likelihood of Bigfoot being real in the Pacific Northwest, um, as extremely unlikely, just in light of the fact that we never find skulls or skeletons or get a good picture or whatever, and we know that people have hoaxed, you know, and so... I mean, you're now... You're now- in it because you're now going to get the Bigfoot community coming after us. But luckily it doesn't include any actual Bigfoot. So yeah, exactly. I'd be more concerned. (laughs) Um, But anyway, point being unforgivable to fuse those things. Also unforgivable to take incredibly important sources like, um, like Peter McCullough, Mm. uh, 
like Ryan Cole, um, Steve Kirsch, mm -hmm. to have these people in a film in which low-quality stuff, garbage stuff, and this very important observation. Yeah, so there's a, there's a few errors. Yep. Right, like we haven't, uh, the, I don't even remember what it is that they're showing, but they're talking about some very unlikely events that have actually happened. Yeah. And three times in a row, they're like, the probability is zero. And I was actually yelling at my computer, like, no, don't do that. Right, right? like, no, they, you know, the probability cannot be zero of the thing that happened. Right, they, right? they basically <laughs> are making an argument, a correct argument, about the number of standard deviations out we are, and right. therefore how unlikely this is, and then they are synonymous, they're basically rounding to zero, right? right? And it's, yeah. it's and you, mathematically... You don't, you don't round to zero. In fact, it's exactly the subject of this episode of Dark Horse that we've been talking about. The point is, yeah. you can have a very, very low probability, and it's not the same thing as zero. Yeah. Um, but... Anyway, so what I'm going to... I still think I have knees, though. Not if this is a simulation, you don't. <laughs> I mean, I think the simulation of me in the simulation thinks I have knees. Oh, yeah. I, that no, was too many the, simulations, the, but then that would happen. Let's agree that you either have knees or simulated knees. But um, simulation... <laughs> no, it's really three. It's knees, simulated knees, or imaginary knees. I mean, you could be a schizophrenic quadriplegic who thinks they have knees. I mean, quadriplegics still have knees. They just don't work. Oh, uh, amputee, double amputee. Yeah, right. thanks. Sorry. I'm just trying to be complete about the various hypotheses here. Believe me, the Obviously. one I believe in is the one that you have knees. <laughs> Functioning. Um, yes. Yes. But anyway, my advice to our audience was going to be, yeah. actually, as much as I would like to tell you, don't watch this film because we don't know what it is. The clot stuff, the pseudo-clot, whatever these structures are, rubber band, calamari, whatever it is, watch it. Evaluate for yourself what are the chances that these morticians, it's not an infinite number of morticians in this mm -hmm. uh, piece, what are the chances that, that they are not what they appear, that they're a plant you know, placed to convince us that these structures are real and that it will turn out not to be true because every other mortician in the Western world is going to stand up and tell us, hey, wait a second, I haven't seen a one of these things, right? What are the chances? And don't those chances drop every day that the morticians don't rise up and denounce this film saying, hey, those things aren't real, right? So anyway, I would say watch the film. Um, do not let the film color your view of Ryan Cole, of Steve Kirsch, uh, of Peter, Peter McCullough. McCullough. Um, process these things independently. And the film could be a malicious nonsense designed to take this very important and effectively uncontrovertible, incontrovertible piece of evidence and get rid of it by, by muddling it. It could be that. Process it separately. Process the observations, the interviews. Go back and look at Steven Crowder's interview. And then watch what develops in the coming weeks. Is this being used to get rid of that evidence by saying, oh, it's part of some giant conspiracy theory that involves Bigfoot and 9-11 and who knows? Mm -hmm. Don't do that, right? Process the information that these morticians seem to be giving you independently and leave the rest of the film out because it's not clear even what it is. Um, that's my advice. All right. Uh, let's talk for just a couple minutes about pairs before we sign off. Absolutely. Of course. Um, there's an account on Twitter, uh, a guy named Paul Ferry, who is apparently a researcher at University of Calgary, who does these sort of long historic threads with pieces from newspapers. Uh, and uh, in 
recently he's done one on the correct way to eat various fruits, historical accounts of the correct way to eat various fruits. And he's got an 1863, and it's, it's, it's fun, it's good. Uh, he's got an 1863 quotation from Henry, Henry Ward Beecher uh, that includes the following. Let me see. Few people untrained by pomological conventions know how to eat pears. They take them after a hearty meal. They take whole ones. They eat them. Should their selection be good, they are fortunate. If bad, they must eat the whole or give up. Gather in your friends at evening. The tea is taken in a mere souvenir of bread. Now, while all are fresh, unstuffed, and unsated, bring in your pears, seven or eight kinds. Let one man carve. Take the probably poorest first, and yet your poorest must be good. Give to each guest a section of the same pear. Eat together from the one fruit and be united and magnetized by the spiritual essence of the one fruit. So on, from fruit to fruit and from kind to kind. Thus each one, without cloying or overfulness, will have tasted of each kind and of every specimen. Meantime, the conversation must abound. Tell the great and wonderful stories of the new seedling, of the wonderful yield, of the immense size, of the freaks and fantasies, of luck and unluck in this or that sort. In short, have a real garden gossip. Pears thus discriminately and unselfishly eaten will prove to be not the forbidden fruit. That's marvelous. Isn't that marvelous? Yeah. And it felt, it felt apropos this week of Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, uh, where there is, uh, we hope that all of you in the United States or who celebrate American holidays have, have taken of much wonderful food this week and have much to be grateful for and have shared that with your family and, and friends who, was gathered, who were gathered with you. Um, but I will say the particular description of how it is to share pears, as he's talking about, um, matches very much what very often, um, oh boy, is the dog gonna sit on the cat or? <laughs> um, the dressage section <laughs> of the podcast has begun. Yes. Um, what, I think very often it's been you and Toby uh, and it's more often with apples than with pears, sometimes it's mangoes, uh, will bring to the table, often it's not our entire meal, usually it's after dinner. We'll bring a cutting board and several apples and you will cut and share and we will talk and we will each have a bit of an apple and some, you know, it might seem that, you know, having been given a piece of an apple that isn't so good, like, oh, I don't want any more of that one, just wait, like, no, we're sharing the apple. Maybe we can all decide that that one isn't worth eating and we can get rid of it, but you learn so much about food and about individual variation, not just in the food itself, but in yourselves when you do it this way as well. It's, it's remarkable and it really is. I mean, it's, it's breaking fruit, not breaking bread, but it, it's, it's that. Yeah, and it's, it's marvelous too because the nobody knows how to make a great apple. Right. What we can do is take a tree that makes a great apple and we can propagate its branches by grafting them to things or whatever. But yeah. the individual yeah. variation. Apples are so far from breeding true. They just. Yeah. Right. And this is true within a lot of fruits yeah. that, you know, a particular tree yields especially delay. You know, I had this experience in, in Panama when I was doing my bat work. I actually had a, a license to operate very tiny boats in the Panama Canal, and I used to go to some of the abandoned mango trees that existed in the canal zone because the Panamanians... Abandoned meaning that they had been planted for their fruit-bearing capacity. Absolutely. Yeah. They had been planted and were now abandoned because citizens were driven out of the canal zone when the canal was put in, and it was basically maintained as a 
human-free zone. And so there are all of these trees, mm -hmm. and some of them would give you these watery, stringy mangoes that weren't worth eating, and some of them would give you just the most incredibly delightful, you know, sweet and uh, complex. And that was uh, by tree? Like, in tree, yeah. trees were reliable? Yes, they were. And mm -hmm. so a particularly good tree fruiting in a particular place would have me go back there regularly. Yeah, trap lining um, like a common hummingbird. Exactly, exactly. So but anyway. Don't, uh, don't eat mangoes, but... <laughs> <laughs> they would have trouble yes. <laughs> trouble with that. But yeah. um, but there is something amazing. The subtlety of the difference between one apple to the next, sometimes even within, you know, if you go to the market and you buy a particular strain of apple, mm -hmm. but you still get one that's okay and yep. one that's delightful. And, totally. you know, the notes are very subtle. And so anyway, it is kind of a cool experience. You don't, you typically have an apple or somebody else has an apple. You don't share within an apple, but it does... Yeah bring you together, you know, what, what and here you're saying, don't do that. Don't treat your fruit that way. Don't yeah. take a whole apple and just eat it to yourself. What's that point? Uh, yeah, no. You, and, and, you know, there's a question about why we don't do this with lots of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like a hamburger. <laughs> wasn't on my list but <laughs> no, it shouldn't you know. be <laughs> um, but Sorry. you know we sort of do this with cheese right yeah, a board sure. of cheese oh, that one's particularly good you yeah, know yeah. um but and, and because you know, even you know oh, it came from the same uh fromagerie like it, you know well but this one didn't ripen as well this one like this one is not as good as the last time i had that wheel right the the, the same wheel it's not the same but we should do Food it varies. with yeah. wine in other words, I think far more interesting than mm. the elite bottle of wine is the distinction between bottles that aren't so elite, but that you could, you know. Yeah, it's harder to do if there's just, you know, two of you and you aren't alcoholics. Right, exactly. Right? Like, but if, it doesn't but, save, But right? if, you have a, if you have a party, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, tasting a little bit of this and a little bit yeah. of that rather than large glasses of whatever yeah, is, totally. is more interesting. And also... Well, this, I mean, flights, right? Like, tasting flights are are all the rage now in foodie circles for yep. lots of things. And, you know, food to some degree, but, you know, cider flights, wine flights, cocktail flights, spirit flights. Yeah. But the idea of sharing them and adding the social component, yeah. you know, if two people have a mirrored flight of something and, you know, discussing what the individual things taste like to them, which may be different for reasons of physiology or totally. maybe developmentally different or yeah. whatever is, is interesting, interesting stuff. And I also, I, you know, I don't drink beer anymore, as you know, because uh, wheat, right? I can't drink it. Yeah. Um, but I always liked beer better than wine because the it was much more about variance than precision, right? The vast array of different flavors and different beers is, I think, in some ways more interesting than... So seriously, one show, you're going to take on the, the Bigfoot crowd and the wine crowd. I, I just um, I, I feel like there's probably relatively small overlap between the two. So you know you got two pretty yeah, I don't you know pretty the, powerful lobbies coming after us. The uh, the I'm bigfoot thinking. the bigfoot folks. I don't think they're big wine drinkers. That's that's uh, yeah yeah. That's what I was trying to communicate. Yeah yeah, yeah. that's uh, I think that's likely. Yes so yes now we have we can add those to the list of people who count us as enemies. I guess because you've claimed that wine doesn't have the variation uh, for the palate that beer does. That's what I heard you say. It's more a level of refinement than it is a matter of variance. Yeah, there's there's a there's a broader spectrum for beer. Yeah, oh, that's is that it? That's that's yeah. my claim. Okay. Yep. You heard it here. All right. So, anyone else we can offend? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, the, okay, the dog is going to break something. We better get off air before she does so. <laughs> She's wondering why she gave up her spot. 
she'll never get it back now. Um, all right. Well, that was the first of four live streams that we're going to be doing this weekend. Uh, hang out where you are right now if you're listening live, and we'll be back in about 15 minutes with a Q&A. We're going to start with yep. three, count them, three questions from the Discord server, because every week they vote on a question they really want us to uh, answer. And because we missed our last two Q&As, uh, we've got three from them this week, but you can go to darkhorsesubmissions.com uh, to ask a question. We will not get to all of them, but we will get to as many as we can. And then tomorrow... But, the, but in the 15-minute break that they have, this would be a great time to stretch their knees, whether they are simulated, uh, real, or imaginary. Yeah, your certainty in your needness uh, should not affect whether or not you can stretch them. Right. They, they need stretching one way or the other. That I think yeah. we can safely say. Totally. Yeah. Oh, see, now they're missing all the carnivorous action happening yes, down here are. at this point. Well, well, we'll get back as soon as possible and see if we can replicate some of this. Um, you, We encourage you to join our Patreons tomorrow uh, at 9.45 a.m. Pacific. We're going to do a one-hour like holiday gift episode uh, of Dark Horse and then take another 15-minute break and then come into our private Q&A uh, available through my Patreon. And next weekend from 9 to 11 Pacific on each of the uh, weekend days, Brett will be having some of his conversations on Patreon. So please consider going over to uh, patreon.com and finding one or both of our accounts there and joining us there. Until we see you next, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. And fight the simulators. <laughs>